Hello and welcome to the Death of the Roman Republic post-series episode 3, Servilia and the Spider's Web. As I said in the series prologue, the Roman Republic was a very patriarchal society. By my rough count of the 152 people I named in Death of the Roman Republic, only 20 of them were women, so I'm pretty sure I failed the Bechdel test. Morty, do you know what the Bechdel test is? The what? For God's sake, Morty, the formula for measuring female agency in a story proposed by lesbian cartoonist Allison. What are they teaching you in that school? Other stuff! However, there are quite a few notable women whose lives are intertwined in the Roman Republic's violent transformation into the Roman Empire. As a 7th grader wisely said to me this year, I'm not trying to be chauvinistic, but... These women's lives were very dependent on the men in their lives, but those were the constraints of the society they lived in. It is my goal in these episodes to further flesh out these important, high-born women reviewing their actions in the late Roman Republic, and if possible, talk about other important events in their lives. I hope to learn, and hope listeners can learn, about these women too, that these women were not wholly subservient to the men in their lives, but had a degree of agency and made their own decisions good and bad, who hustled as hard as the men in the Roman world and played some role in the death of the Roman Republic. I say this having completed only this episode so far, and have learned a lot about this particular woman, Servilia. Now I'm not gonna lie, I did not read up on or plan to read extensive biographies on these women. Rather, I read up on and will read up on some articles from various sites that corroborate my rough understanding of their lives from the books and other research that I have already read and done. That includes Wikipedia, which as a teacher makes my heart bleed, but those sources were checked, I promise. Also, it fills my heart with joy that of DOTRR's modest following, there are quite a few people who know way more about Roman history and the Roman Republic than me, and still enjoy the show somehow, so I'm sure you folks easily know more about these women than me, but I hope you still enjoy this episode and those to come. Not to do too much self-promo, but I genuinely recommend listening to chapters 1 through 20 of the main series, Death of the Roman Republic. Don't get me wrong, I do hope you will enjoy this episode and other episodes about awesome women in the Roman world if you haven't listened to the main series, but having at least a basic background knowledge on the major characters and events in the late Roman Republic, whether that's my podcast or your own research, will I hope give you a greater appreciation of these women. As I learned, Servilia, the focus of this episode, was at an incredible intersection of so many pivotal events in the death of the Roman Republic, and I think knowing those events will make you appreciate her all the more. But with all that said, whether you know nothing, a bit, or know a lot, I hope you enjoy the show. Also, this episode puts the 13 in PG-13. Servilia was born to Quintus Servilius Capio and Livia, no, not that Livia, estimated around 100 BCE. For reference, imagine she's always about the same age as her future paramour slash beefcake, Julius Caesar. Servilia, as was standard for Roman women in this period, simply went by Servilia. Roman naming conventions were not like modern naming conventions around the world. Today, most people have at least a given name and a surname, aka a first name and a last name. However, Roman society was different. My very rough explanation goes like this. Men were given a first name and their family's surname, and if necessary, a third name to further distinguish them. Take, for example, Marcus Portius Cato, or as we know him today, Cato the Younger. 
Marcus was essentially his first name, and he belonged to the Porcii family. However, within the Porcii family, he more specifically belonged to the Catone branch. Marcus of the Porcii family of the Catone branch, ergo Marcus Porcius Cato. Or take his enemy, Gaius Julius Caesar. Gaius was his first name, he belonged to the Julii family, specifically the Caesarian branch. If you're a dude, think about how your name would translate in the Roman world, your first name, last name, and branch of your family, if they're significant enough of a branch. Hopefully I didn't screw up that explanation, no promises guaranteed. I don't think I explicitly said this, but you may have noticed in the main series that women in Roman society were simply given a feminine variation of their family's name. Quintus Servilius Capio belonged to the Servilii family, thus his daughter was Servilia. But what happens, dare you ask, if a family had two daughters? This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Well, there was an easy way to distinguish them. Rank them by birth order. Our Servilia actually had a younger sister, also named Servilia. To distinguish them, our Servilia was Servilia Major, since she was born first, and her little sister was Servilia Minor. If there was a third daughter, she would probably have been named Servilia Tertia or Servilia III. If you're a lady, think about how your name would translate in the Roman world. Just feminize your dad's last name, and if you have other sisters, you gotta rank birth order. Also, hopefully I didn't screw up this explanation, but female naming conventions are way easier to explain than men's in this instance. So here we have Servilia, a big sister born into a wealthy, patrician family. As you'll remember from the main series, divorce was super common in Roman society among aristocrats who used marriage as a tool to make connections and alliances in politics. Servilia's parents, Livia and Quintus Servilius Capio, called it quits. according to the historian Plutarch, was that Servilia's father Capio was not getting along with his brother-in-law, Marcus Livius Drusus. That name may sound familiar, and keep it in mind here. Servilia's father Capio apparently didn't remarry, big L there, my guy, while her mother Livia got herself a real himbo. Livia would marry Marcus Portius Cato, and they would have a son together, also named Marcus Portius Cato, or as we know him, Cato the Younger. That's how Servilia and Cato the Younger are related, half-siblings with the same mother. Servilia was probably about five years old when Cato was born. Servilia's life takes a dark turn, as her mother Livia and stepfather Marcus Portius Cato would both die in the mid-90s. <laughs> So Servilia and Cato the Younger would live with Livia's brother, Marcus Livius Drusus. Livia's brother, Marcus Livius Drusus, was tribune of the plebs in 91 BCE, who, in chapter 4 of Death of the Roman Republic, wanted to upgrade the citizenship status of Latins and Italians who shared the Italian peninsula with the Romans. 
This was a very unpopular measure among the Romans, and he died under mysterious circumstances. Many back then, and many today, say he was assassinated. Marcus Livius Drusus's mysterious death can be interpreted as the straw that broke the camel's back and started the social war, Romans versus the rebel Italians, sick of their Roman overlords. And during this social war, Servilia's biological father, Quintus Servilius Capio, would be killed. So from Servilia's perspective, the death of her uncle led to the death of her biological father in the social war early on in the death of the Roman Republic. Now I'm not gonna lie, I don't quite know who looked after these children with their family members dropping like flies. At a maximum, Servilia could have been in her early teens, where she would have legally been independent and very wealthy, according to the book Servilia and Her Family, which was found in Wikipedia references. But one way or another, Servilia and her family got by. Look at Cato the Younger, for example, who grew up to become a well-adjusted member of society. At some point, I can't find the year, Servilia got married and had a baby. Servilia was wed to one Marcus Junius Brutus. They had a son named, you guessed it, Marcus Junius Brutus. This young Brutus was born around 85 BCE. A few years later, in 77 BCE, the vicious, proscribing dictator Sola had just died. In his absence, the young Pompey Magnus was on the rise and eager to demonstrate his value to the Republic by continuing his actions as a vicious warlord. Forgive me for my wrongs, I have just begun. As you'll recall from the events of Chapter 6, one Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, father of the future triumvir, went against Rome and started a rebellion. Among the rebels was Servilia's husband, Marcus Junius Brutus. Pompey would be among the commanders to crush it, and Servilia's husband, the young Brutus's father, was killed. By my math, and I'm not a math teacher, Servilia would have been in her early 30s, so would not stay single for long. She would marry Decimus Junius Solanus and have a son and three daughters with him. Their son was Decimus Junius Solanus, named after his father, and their daughters were Junia Prima I, Junia Secunda II, and Junia Tertia III. All these girls would be married off later in life to some interesting characters, particularly the youngest daughters. Junia Secunda would be married to Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, the future triumvir, whose father was killed by Pompey. Junia Tertia would be married to Gaius Cassius Longinus, You'll recall from chapter 10, Cassius led the surviving Romans from Parthia back to Roman territory after the first triumvir Crassus's failed vanity project. And you'll also recall from chapter 14 that Cassius did something too. And let's just say that it rhymes with crabbing someone to death. And, and not to sound chauvinistic, but no telling of Servilia's life would be complete without the sexual icon, Gaius Julius Caesar. 
They want it bad and you know it, don't you? But you know I got cash to put on it, don't you? We don't know for sure when their famous affair got started. It could have been after the death of Servilia's first husband, Marcus Junius Brutus. It could have been after the births of her daughters with Decimus Junius Solanus. It could have been somewhere in between. But as we all know by this point, Caesar was a... Be noted, big PG-13 language incoming. You slut dragon! You slut! Chill out, dude. Okay, that's slut! You don't have to... Shame on you! As the fellows would say, Caesar was a player. However, by 63 BCE, they were definitely hooking up, because we know that during the high-stakes Catiline conspiracy, during the Senate debate about what to do with the captured conspirators who were trying to overthrow the Republic, that sounds familiar, something interesting happened! To review the events in Chapter 8, the Senator Catiline had gone, and was going to try and have an army march on Rome to take control as Sola and Marius and Sola had done before him. He had a couple of allies who were captured by the consul Cicero when the plot was uncovered. While Catiline was still at large, the consul Cicero had to guide the Senate to a decision about what to do with these conspirators. Cicero was up for executing them, but wanted the Senate to formally vote on it. Most senators agreed with Cicero, including Servilia's half-brother Cato the Younger. By this point in life, Cato was a notable politician who was a lodestar of traditional Roman Republican values. He lived a peculiar life compared to some of his fellow politicians in his efforts to uphold the Republic's traditions, but this gave him notoriety and a bit of a following, which he used to advance himself in politics. Also vying for execution was Decimus Junius Solanus, consul-elect for the next year and Servilia's husband. However, Julius Caesar boldly argued in opposition that the captured Catiline conspirators were not an active threat, and that they should not be executed. Rather, they should be prisoners in separate towns across Italy. Caesar's controversial take left many to speculate about his motives, and some like Cato implied that Caesar himself was in on the conspiracy and didn't want to see his fellow conspirators executed. And then a secret note came in for Caesar. Let's roll a clip on what happened next. Okay, so during the debate, while Cato was attacking Caesar's character, suggesting his leniency indicated sympathy to or involvement in Catiline's conspiracy, Caesar was brought a note, which he read. As you can imagine, this might look pretty incriminating, and Cato jumped on the opportunity to call Caesar out for conspiring, communicating with Catiline or something. Cato demanded Caesar read the note aloud to show his involvement in the conspiracy, which Caesar did not want to do even guiltier. Cato again demanded Caesar read the note aloud to show proof of his guilt. Senators were shouting with Cato that Caesar should read this message aloud. Caesar, pressured by many, handed the note to Cato. Cato was aghast to find the secret note was a quote-unquote very passionate love letter from his half-sister Servilia to her lover Caesar. I don't mean to be graphic, but... It is most simply put like this, and if you are a younger listener, please stop listening now, but Cato's half-sister was basically sexting Caesar, Cato's enemy, in this very important debate. Cato screamed at Caesar, have it back you drunk, and threw the love note at him. Caesar remained calm, cool, and collected throughout the whole incident, and in that same room was Solanus, Servilia's husband, and the man Caesar was cuckolding. If he had any idea about his wife's affair, he never sought retribution on Caesar, or perhaps even encouraged the affair to get Caesar's support. So, 
Yeah, that's a... Whoa, there's a lot going on there. From Caesar, Life of a Colossus, we know that Servilia and Caesar kept up a correspondence even while Caesar was away on his campaigns. Their relationship wasn't so much a fling as it was a long-term affair. Let's remember that infidelity among aristocratic Roman men was the norm, and Caesar's own wife was caught in an affair with Claudius. However, Caesar did not seek retribution against Claudius, and in fact, would be an ally to Claudius in the future. So Solanus, Servilia's actual husband, may or may not have ever totally known about Servilia's infidelity, but he never made a move against Caesar. As a political animal, being friends with the rising Caesar could be advantageous, so Solanus may have turned a blind eye to his wife's infidelity. However, Solanus would die in 57 BCE, apparently. I have no idea how or why. Servilia would have been in her 40s at this point, and it would be some time before Caesar would peacefully return to Rome. When Solanus died, Caesar was conquering Gaul and would go on to start a civil war against Pompey Magnus and the Optimates in 49 BCE when he crossed the Rubicon River. Go, dice roll! Servilia and her family were in an interesting position during the civil war. Caesar was a rebel who Servilia, dare say, loved, but was the aggressor invading the Republic. Cato the Younger, her half-brother, hated Caesar and sided against him, making him an ally of Pompey Magnus. Servilia's son, Marcus Junius Brutus, a politician in his mid-30s at this point, had a much more amicable and friendly relationship with Caesar. Despite this, Brutus was also close with his uncle Cato and aligned with his traditional values. Despite this, if Brutus was going to side with Cato, he would side with Pompey, the man who killed his own father, Servilia's first husband, Marcus Junius Brutus. Brutus would ultimately side with Pompey and Cato against Caesar. As far as how Servilia herself felt, I cannot reliably say I know. Given my resources, which is Google, there's nothing definitive I trust that says she definitively supported the cause of Caesar or supported the cause of Cato, Brutus, and Pompey. You can pause and ponder on this question. If you were Servilia, who would you support in the Civil War? Your longtime lover or your half-brother, your son, and the man who killed your first husband? I will re-emphasize that when I started researching Servilia's life, I had no idea her life was so affected by Marcus Livius Drusus, by the Social War, and by Lepidus's Little Uprising. And now, her life is further embedded in the death of the Roman Republic. It is crazy how much she is in the center of all this. During the Civil War, Caesar, who still favored Brutus, made special instructions that the son of Servilia should not be harmed if defeated, which was stated from the ancient historian Plutarch. Regardless of where Servilia's heart was in the Civil War, Julius Caesar was victorious. After Caesar defeated him at Pharsalus, Poppy made a tactical retreat to Egypt, hoping to rebuild his strength with the help of the young Ptolemy king. Poppy was, of course, assassinated. <laughs> Some politicians, like Servilia's son Brutus, gave up the fight after Pharsalus. Brutus wrote a personal letter to Caesar, apologized to his friend for fighting him, and surrendered to him. Caesar very much accepted it and would put his good friend Brutus in the important position of governing Cisalpine Gaul. Brutus could and would continue to be a politician in Caesar's republic. Unlike Brutus, a few of Caesar's enemies continued on after losing Pompey as their commander. Caesar's civil war brought him to Africa to stamp out the last of his opposition, including the idealist Cato the Younger. 
After the Battle of Thapsus, Cato the Younger killed himself rather than surrender to Caesar. Cato's idealism and love for the traditional republic was so great that he would rather die than live in whatever the tyrannical Caesar would turn it into. Julius Caesar would return to Rome in July 46 BCE. Pompey Magnus was dead, Cato the Younger was dead, and many of his former enemies were dead or surrendered to him. Caesar had restored peace in the Roman Republic. By this point, Caesar and Servilia were in their mid-50s and Brutus was around 40 years old. To focus on Servilia's son, he was a very torn man. While he had a good relationship with Caesar, he had also been very close to his uncle Cato. As Caesar's dictatorship over the Republic began, Brutus increasingly did not vibe with it. For example, Brutus would divorce his wife and married his cousin Portia, daughter of Cato the Younger. His mother, Servilia, was none too pleased about this. I should probably learn to talk with you a little bit more. Well, I think we're okay. We are, aren't we? I mean, you know that there's nothing that you can't be totally honest with me about, and you can say anything to me, you know? Anything at all. You say I had a crush on my own cousin. Hey. <laughs> you just taught me a lesson. <laughs> all right, we're This mother-son drama was recorded by Cicero in his letters to his friend Titus Pompeius Atticus. He was born Titus Pompeius, making him a member of Pompey's family, but took on the nickname Atticus, referring to the Attica region of Greece, which is around Athens, because he liked Athens and Greece so much. Romans liked their nicknames. Anyway, we know from Roman history, divorce was very common among aristocrats to form political alliances. Yet, as Cicero wrote to Atticus, Brutus did not state a good reason for divorce from his first wife. For example, Julius Caesar divorced his wife for her alleged infidelity, and Octavian divorced his wife because he couldn't stand her bitter personality. couldn't even make something up apparently, but he did it because he wanted to marry his cousin super bad. You could be a groom. Bring a little girlfriend up there with you. Oh, I don't have a girlfriend. A sister then, or a cousin. Of course, you're gonna have to kiss. Guess who liked that idea? He says he doesn't want to do it. I'm actually trying to respect his choices Good. lately. I just, great. I was just, well, don't, don't answer. I, um, yeah, because I know exactly the cousin. It, I mean, it is the girl I would want to give and she'll want to give too. We'll, and we'll do that together. It's for them, for the sake of... I just, it's a great day. According to Cicero's gossip, Servilia may have also thought that Cato's daughter would have too strong an influence over her son and that Servilia was jealous of Brutus's attention to Portia over his mother. And how did Cicero know so much about Brutus's relationship with his mother? Well, Cicero, Brutus, and other aristocratic friends were discussing it one night, and Cicero quoted the conversation to Atticus, to note, just as Titus Pompeius's nickname was Atticus, Brutus's nickname was Buster. Uh, be noted, strong language is going to be used here. That is not technically swear words. She always makes everything about her. Ugh. She's the last person I ever want to need something from. Well, she likes to be needed, just as long as it doesn't cost her anything. It's like she gets off on being withholding. Whoa. 
Buster. Look who's got something to say. <laughs> I'm mom and I want to shoot down everything you say so I feel good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Look who's ragging on the old lady. Hey. Well, no one's gonna top that. Okay, I made that last part up. But Cicero really did write that Servilia's relationship with her son was strained over his hasty marriage to his cousin, which I found out about via Wikipedia, citing Cicero's letters to Atticus, which really exist. Besides marrying Cato's daughter, Servilia's son engrandized his uncle by publishing praise of him. Cato's ideal republic was antithetical to Caesar's dictatorship and marked a stark contrast between him and Caesar, who Brutus did at one point have a strong relationship with. But Caesar was not one to hold grudges and didn't punish Brutus, one of many former Pompeians who were still Roman politicians. It would be Servilius' son and son-in-law Gaius Cassius Longinus who would be the leading conspirators in the assassination of Julius Caesar by the cowards Brutus and Cassius. Gaius Cassius Longinus was married to Servilia's youngest daughter, Junia Tertia. Cassius and Brutus were both Pompeians who had fought Caesar, who had both accepted pardons by him, and were now both praetors in Caesar's Republic. While Brutus was not one of the original members in the conspiracy, he would become a ringleader in it. Ultimately, 60 or so senators were in on the conspiracy to kill Julius Caesar. Servilia's son was a great face for the murder, I mean liberation. Brutus was entrenched in Cato's strict code of honor, and on his father's side, his legendary ancestor, Lucius Junius Brutus, was the man to expel the last Roman king from Rome and help begin the Roman Republic as one of its first consuls. Now, Marcus Junius Brutus would kill the tyrant and rejuvenate the Roman Republic. On the Ides of March, 44 BCE, Julius Caesar was surrounded by the conspirators in the Senate House and assassinated. Stabbed to death. A lot. This is bad. This is very, very bad. Oh! You can't do this to me. Tensions were high after the assassination of Caesar, and the Republic was on the brink of yet another violent civil war, but neither side wanted to be the aggressor. On the Ides of March, Brutus explicitly saved Mark Antony's life, as other conspirators wanted Caesar's loyal lieutenant dead, but Brutus forbade it. After the assassination, just as Mark Antony, Lepidus, and other Caesarians planned their next moves, Brutus, Cassius, and the other liberators planned their strategy. 
And where better to meet than your mom's house? Indeed, at Servilia's residence were Brutus, Cassius, and several other politicians. Servilia, Portia, and Junia Tertia were the only women allowed to sit in on the planning. While for a time, the Caesareans negotiated with the liberators and the assassins were given amnesty for Caesar's assassination, the spirit of peace would not last long and civil war returned. The liberators would have to flee Rome as Mark Antony turned Roman popular opinion against them at Caesar's funeral. Antony eulogized Caesar as the great and gracious leader who brought Rome stability, who forgave his enemies unlike the merciless Sulla. And for all of that, his friends, like Brutus, Cassius, and dozens of others, murdered him. Antony displayed a model of Caesar's body and where he was stabbed, and produced Caesar's bloody and pierced toga. Look on the mask of my boy. The men who saved Rome were no longer safe in it, and Brutus and Cassius went east to raise their armies for the coming fight against the Second Triumvirate. The Second Triumvirate was made up of the previously mentioned Antony, the teenage Octavian, Caesar's great-nephew and posthumously adopted son, and heir to Caesar's fortune. The third man in the triumvirate was Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, Servilius' son-in-law by marriage to Junius Secunda. It was these men, the second triumvirate, that took control of Rome and the western half of the Republic. Servilia was still in Rome and wanted to save her son and son-in-law's life. She went to senatorial meetings and spoke at these meetings, offering ideas that would allow for Brutus and Cassius to safely and peacefully return to Rome. This is from Wikipedia, cited from the book, Turia, A Roman Woman's Civil War. Brutus was also technically a praetor, duties which were abandoned as he abandoned Rome. Servilia and apparently Cicero's friend Atticus took on the role in Brutus's absence, and Servilia organized the games of Apollo for the residents of Rome. This is also from Wikipedia, citing the book, Servilia and Her Family. In the east, Brutus and Cassius would raise a massive army to fight Mark Antony and Octavian. At the start of the Battle of Philippi, while Mark Antony's army was beating Cassius's, Brutus's was crushing Octavian's. But Octavian wasn't defeated, whereas Cassius committed suicide, believing he was being charged by enemy cavalry when it was truly friendly cavalry coming his way. Hard to know who is friend and foe when Roman armies are fighting Roman armies. It fell to Brutus to fight Antony and Octavian, who after weeks of standoff would finally engage each other. As Antony and Octavian's forces pulled ahead, Brutus committed suicide. Antony is said to have wrapped his own general's cloak around Brutus's body as a sign of respect for his fallen enemy. Antony and Octavian and Lepidus now had total control of the Roman Republic. Servilia's son was dead. His ashes were sent to her from Philippi. While she was the mother and mother-in-law to the lead assassins, Servilia's wealth was not prescribed by the second triumvirate. This was likely due to the fact that she was still mother-in-law to the third triumvir, Lepidus. Servilia was apparently not a target of Octavian or Antony for the rest of her life. To quote the final sentence of Wikipedia's entry on Servilia, very little is known about Servilia's life after the death of Brutus. She is suspected to have died a natural death between 27 and 23 BC, which is cited from the book Servilia and Her Family. She apparently lived with Atticus in comfort and wealth until his death in 32 BCE, and then assumingly on her own or with her surviving son or daughters until her death. 
That last part also came from Wikipedia, which is unsighted, so take from that what you will. Servilia would have been in her 70s when she died and had lived through a lot. Many of Servilia's loved ones and family were casualties in the death of the Roman Republic. Her uncle Marcus Livius Drusus and father Quintus Servilius Capio were killed in relation to Rome's social war with the Italians and Latins. Her first husband Marcus Junius Brutus was killed by Pompey Magnus's forces as this elder Brutus had joined a rebellion against the Republic. Her half-brother Cato would die by the actions of Julius Caesar's civil war, and her lover Julius Caesar would die by the actions of her son Brutus, and her son Brutus would die in his civil war for the soul of the Roman Republic. At the time of Servilia's death in the 20s BCE, she would have lived through the rest of the death of the Roman Republic. She would have lived through Sextus Pompey's civil war against Octavian, and Octavian stripping her son-in-law Lepidus of his power as a triumvir. She lived through Lucius Antonius, Mark Antony's brother, and Fulvia, Mark Antony's wife, and their failed civil war against Octavian. She would have heard of Mark Antony becoming enamored with an Eastern lifestyle and the Egyptian Queen Cleopatra, and of his failed Parthian campaigns that failed to live up to Julius Caesar's dreams. She saw the breakdown in Octavian and Antony's relationship, and the escalating slights against each other that led to the last civil war of the Roman Republic. Antony and Octavian at Actium. There, Antony and Cleopatra's forces were defeated by Octavian's man Agrippa. Antony and Cleopatra's suicides would leave Octavian with no enemies, foreign or domestic, to challenge him, and the path was cleared for his ascension to Augustus, becoming the first Roman emperor in 27 BCE. Literally, Servilia, born around 100 BCE, would have been born under one of the famous Marius's consulships, she would become a lover of Julius Caesar, Marius's nephew, and her son would die in his war against Julius Caesar's great-nephew Octavian. And even if she died in 27 BCE, she would have lived to watch the man who killed her son become emperor and the ultimate perversion of the values that her half-brother Cato stood for. Servilia lived through the social war, the civil wars of Marius and Sulla, the Catiline conspiracy, the rise of the first triumvirate, the civil war between Caesar and Pompey, Caesar's dictatorship and assassination, the civil war between the Second Triumvirate and the Liberators, the disintegration of the Second Triumvirate, the Battle of Actium, the Des of Antony and Cleopatra, and the proclamation of Imperator Caesar Divifilius Augustus as princeps. I truly had no idea that Servilia was so involved in the death of the Roman Republic and lived through most of my little series. Literally, she would have been alive from chapter 4 onwards. Like this fun little side project accidentally became almost a full series recap. Servilia's life makes me ask a lot of questions too, because while the internet and Wikipedia is a great place to go when you research it the right way, there's stuff not included from events 2,000 plus years ago. I have questions, serious and trivial, like how much did the thought of death linger in her mind as a young woman, having lost her father, mother, stepfather, and uncle who was raising her by the time she was a teenager, and did that affect her development? When precisely did her affair with Caesar start, and when precisely did it end? How did Servilia feel about Caesar's other women, including Cleopatra? How did she feel that she never got her timing right with Caesar in marriage? Because when Solanus died and she was a widow, Caesar was fighting in Gaul, and then fighting Romans, 
and by the time Rome was at peace, Caesar would have played a role in her half-brother Cato's death. Did she feel guilty in the death of Cato for her involvement with Caesar? Did she harbor romantic feelings for Caesar during the dictatorship? If her son Brutus was truly ignoring his mother over his new wife, could Servilia have stopped the assassination of Caesar? Was she even aware of the conspiracy? Was she horrified at what her son did to Caesar, or did she think what he did was just? She appears to have supported him, at least. What did she think as she watched Mark Antony and Octavian, the men who killed Brutus and Cassius, as they carved up the Roman world? What did she think when they were at each other's throats? Which of the two men to have killed Brutus and Cassius did she hope would win? In her later years, what was the nature of her relationship with Atticus, whom she was living with, platonic or romantic? What did she do on a day-to-day -day basis? Was she a happy woman? How much did the thought of death linger in her mind? Did she have any regrets? If she could travel back in time, what would she tell her younger self to avoid all the death that followed her in life? There may be texts to be consulted to answer some of these questions, but ultimately, I find Servilia is not as easy to characterize as the men in the late Roman Republic particularly men like Caesar, Antony, and Octavian, whose books by Adrian Goldsworthy were the basis of the main series, are easier to characterize. Much is said of them historically and in modern biographies, and we can ascribe characteristics to them. That, of course, can be debated and questioned based on the biases of our ancient sources, but at least we have something. Who Servilia truly was, and how she felt about her life and the people in her life, and how those feelings evolved, is harder to grasp. There are facts we know, that Caesar was her lover, that she was a bit daring to write a love note to him, that she loved her children and tried to protect them. Yet for all she lived through, all that she witnessed, and all that she lost, there's so much we're missing. I said at the start of this episode, I hope to further flush out women like Servilia, and honestly I feel like I failed in that goal in this case. And it's very possible I will fail that and the other women I will talk about. But I'm really, really happy I made this episode because I used what was available to me to at least talk about Servilia's very fascinating life. I fear this may be a theme for this miniseries, that we are limited in what we know about the women of the Roman world, but it's worth looking at nonetheless. As I've said many times, I am truly and delightfully surprised about how much I learned about Servilia and all that she experienced. And clearly, my imagination is racing about her thoughts on the events of her life. Honestly, I feel really bad for her. If I had to ascribe one word to Servilia and her life, it would be tragic. I don't know if she would call her life tragic. I don't know a lot, but I'm glad I got to tell you a bit more of her story for a while. Thank you very much for listening to Servilia and the Spider's Web. I have four other women I would like to talk about and hopefully can release an episode next month on one of them. But I am also a busy teacher and may not be able to accomplish that goal. In the meantime, if you've never listened to the main series, Death of the Roman Republic, I highly suggest you do so. I've been name-dropping it a lot this episode. Servilia's life was so enchanting for me to read about because it blew my mind how many events in the late Roman Republic she was connected to. If you've listened to the series or are familiar with the Death of the Roman Republic in another way, I hope you feel as I did. And if you're just randomly listening to this Servilia episode, I appreciate it, but I will go so far as to say, uh, I promise you, the episode will be better if you learn more about the late Roman Republic and the events in its downfall, so you better understand Servilia's many connections to those events. Like I've been gushing about for a while now, 
Uh, hopefully you've picked up on that, but the death of the Roman Republic is inherently interesting, and Servilia's proximity to so many of its participants is also super interesting. Yeah! So listen to Death of the Roman Republic if you want. It's evergreen content from 2020, but you can listen and learn from it at any time. Or don't. It's your life. I appreciate you listening to this episode at least. Follow the show on Twitter at D-O-T-R-R-Pod for Roman history memes, show updates, random stuff from me, other fun stuff. Tweet at the show too. Uh, Your thoughts on Servilia, the Roman Republic, Roman history, Roman history memes, etc. With all that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Also, thank you, Cameron, for this awesome outro and intro. Oh.